you take your Bibles and stay right there in Romans, we'll finish that chapter off in a moment. But before we do that, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon the sermon and the hearing of his word preached this morning. Join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come again before you this morning to hear from you. We praise you that you have given us such a rich treasure to know what to think and how to think, and that you've given us a sure word regarding basic truths and profound truths. We thank you, dear Lord, and we confess that this is your word, breathed out by you and given to us as your covenant people. And yet, Lord God, we are often hard of hearing, and so we ask that your gracious spirit would grant us grace this day, and that you would give us ears to hear and hearts that are ready to and willing to believe. We pray, Lord God, that you would magnify your Son in our midst now, that the good news of the gospel as it is presented in him would come to us, and Lord, that we would find hope and life in believing. And so we pray, Lord, grace for your people and for the one who speaks on your behalf, in order that your name might be magnified in all the earth. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 5, picking up at verse 12, please uh, give your attention to God's word. Romans 5, starting at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sins. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's death, trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundant grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so the act of one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin is increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through just uh, righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So far, the reading of God's word. May he indeed add his blessing to it. We're taking a break from our study through 1 Corinthians for the summer, a summer series we're going to do on the doctrines of grace. Um, Our usual practice, as you know, is to expound books of the Bible verse by verse, uh, line upon line. Uh, But it's good at times to draw from God's word um, in a a systematic or thematic way uh, as well. This can be helpful. As well, after the recovery of the gospel in the great Protestant Reformation, uh, a group rose up and challenged the teaching of the church. Uh, They challenged some key foundational issues and teachings 
of the Church of Jesus Christ. And so the church, in following the model of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, you recall in Acts 15, it's about the Jerusalem Council, the meeting, the coming together of the churches. Um, that's one of the places in Scripture where we see, uh, where we, from which we pattern our church government after. And so the church, after the Reformation and these challenges came, they were attempting to be faithful and consistent with and modeled after Scripture. Uh, So the Protestant and Reformed churches um, sought to do this. And so that church, uh, in response to this challenge, in 1619, came together, like in Acts 15, to deal with these challenges. And the result of that council or synod, as as they were called, the synod, uh, was to condemn those teachings as contrary to the word of God. And this year, 2019, marks the 400th anniversary of that synod. And that response specifically to five challenges to the teachings of the church, the response to that is what has become to known as the doctrines of grace. Technically, the old term for that coming together in this response is were the canons of Dort. Right? The canons were the response, the writings of this synod. Dort was the place where they met. It's a city in the Netherlands. Uh, and that document can be found in the back of our Psalter hymnal. Uh, the canons of Dort are right there in the back, if you'd like to read them sometime. They're a wonderful, wonderful document. But most people know this response to these challenges, uh, this, this, these canons of Dort, as the five points of Calvinism, or, or through the, the, the acronym TULIP, right? T-U-L-I-P, all standing for a specific point of these five, um, these five doctrines. Um, and because it's the 400th anniversary of the Canons of Dorth, and because history is important, as we've seen, but mostly because we want to be faithful to the teaching of God's Word, we're going to look at Scripture's teaching on these things uh, for the next five Sundays. We want to magnify God's mercy and His love and His sovereignty and His grace. And because these truths are born out of His Word for His glory, we will take this morning in the next four Lord's Days to look at these doctrines of grace. Uh, it's helpful for us as we see, as we enter into this study, uh, to notice, to recognize that these, these five points, they follow, they, 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 there's a, a progress logically, they, they progress logically. And so in summary fashion, let's look at these doctrines, uh, these five points or petals of the tulip. Uh, five points or petals to the tulip. Uh, that's, that's, that's the title of this sermon, The Flower's First Petal. Um, <clears throat> so the first is the, of, these, these, uh, of the tulip is T, right? And T stands for total depravity. Uh, because of the sin of the first man, Adam, we are all born totally depraved sinners under God's just wrath. We are born unable to do anything for ourselves, to save ourselves. But God, the Father, our gracious God, before creation of the world, had already chosen to save a great multitude of sinners on the basis of that second petal of the tulip, unconditional election. God the Father sent His Son to redeem those He had chosen by making for them an atonement, limited to His people. That's the third petal, limited atonement. He made atonement for the sins of the elect, thereby paying their debt in their place as their substitute and destroying the power of sin in their lives. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, together with the preaching of the Gospel, applies the work of Christ 
to these sinners' hearts, and he makes them spiritually alive by the power of that fourth petal, the eye, irresistible grace. He causes them to be born again and consequently to repent and believe upon Jesus Christ. So those, those are the first four petals, uh, the first four points of the tulip. Right? It is the totally depraved sinner who is helpless in the world under the power of sin, guilty before the bar of God's judgment. But then the great mercy of the triune God is set in motion when each person of the Trinity, each person of the Godhead, has his part to play in the plan of redeeming sinners. Again, God the Father determines those who he will redeem by unconditional election. God the Son accomplishes redemption for those whom the Father chooses. And God the Holy Spirit applies Christ's redemption to the hearts of the elect. And so you see the progression. We start out as depraved sinners. And through the work of our mighty and sovereign triune God, we become persevering saints. Right? That's the last petal, the fifth glorious petal. P, the perseverance of the saints. And you see the big picture here uh, and the glory of it all. From the letter T to the letter P. From sinners to saints. And of course, if salvation is indeed of God then its construction and its execution cannot be thwarted. And those who are truly saved will remain saved. The true saints will persevere in love and in holiness and faith. Praise God even unto glory. Yes, the believer may fall into temptation because of the remaining sin within him. And the neglect of the means of grace, they may fall into even grievous sins even incurring God's displeasure. But in the end, God wins the victory in deliverance and sustaining those sinners, saved sinners, even to the end. Though man stumbles and stammers, the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will not let His people fall away to damnation. They've been permanently changed and saved forever. And these great doctrines of grace highlight for us the gospel as a message of God-centered independence for its success upon the sovereign grace of God alone. So it is the gospel of grace. And in this gospel of grace, who gets the credit? It's God. God gets the credit. God alone gets the glory and the praise. For He alone has affected this salvation. And He has acted effectually and spoken unto salvation to sinners in, uh, in, of sinners uh, through Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we'll look at just the first of those petals, the first of those points, uh, the T of the flower of grace, total depravity. Uh, and we'll do so through three questions. If you're a note taker, here is the outline of what we'll be uh, going through uh, at this time. Uh, these three questions, the first question is, what is the definition of total depravity? What does that even mean? The second question, what about the will of the totally depraved man? Is it free? Is it bound? Is it in bondage? And then thirdly, the third question, what about salvation for the totally depraved sinner? What about salvation for the depraved man? So the first question, what is the definition of total depravity? What do we mean by depravity? Well, by depravity we mean that human nature is fundamentally sinful, evil, morally corrupt. It is perverted and wicked. Some have used the term radically corrupt. Man is radically corrupt. There's radical corruption through all of what man is, all of his parts. 
And though man is made in the image of God and was without sin as created by God in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, through their sin of eating that forbidden fruit, rebelled against God, causing the human nature to be plunged into sinful depravity. As we have heard earlier in Romans chapter 12, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 12 and verse 19, where Paul says, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. With the exception of Jesus Christ, every person conceived since Adam and Eve was conceived a sinner, Psalm 51, and was born a sinner, Psalm 58. We are born spiritually dead and we remain spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins apart from God's redeeming grace. Not wounded, not nearly dead, but dead. Not overboard at sea, about to go under. Not about to perish, but lifeless at the bottom of the ocean, becoming food for fish. This is the declaration of Scripture of the unregenerate man. I recall in Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Proverbs 20. Who can say, I have made my heart pure, unclean from my sin? Rhetorical question. The answer is none. No one can say that. Mark 7, Jesus bluntly says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, uh, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus did not teach the common uh, thinking that human nature, that people are basically good. Right? That's what we hear all the time. This is not the testimony of Scripture. It's not the testimony of Word of Christ, of Christ Himself, even as we read from the Gospels. Even, you'll recall, to His closest disciples, what did Jesus tell, tell them? In Luke eleven thirteen, He says, If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts, He's talking to His disciples. Even to his closest disciples, without batting an eye, she can call them evil. So the testimony of Scripture is that even though all kinds of people do many good things, many civilly righteous things, yet before a holy God in the bar and the standard of his justice, and under the scrutiny of his eyes, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We love our autonomy, right? We love to be a self, a law unto ourselves. We violate God's law. We ignore God's law. And our evil natures, our natures are evil, corrupt, perverted, and wicked. Depraved. Right? So what do we mean by total, totally depraved? Well, we do not mean that every person is as bad as he can be. Right? That's not what total depravity means. Total depravity, by that we mean that every part of man's makeup Every part of his constitution is infected with sin, corrupted, and under sin's dominion. We do not mean that every part of man's makeup is as bad as it can be. Because even the most wicked could be worse than they are. And even in this, brothers and sisters, we see God's mercy 
towards humanity. God, through his common grace, restrains or he holds back the full expression of sin. No part of man is unaffected by sin. He is totally affected. He is totally affected, totally depraved. Just as we think about the devastating reality of that, we must pause, dear Christian. We must pause to give praise to the God of grace who loved us in Christ, to give us new natures and life in Christ, to rescue us from that fire, to pluck us from the fire of depravity, to delight in His Son, Jesus Christ. In all of this, why? Why did He do this? Why did He save me? Why did He save you? For His good pleasure. For His glory. And that brings us to the second question this morning. What about the will of a totally depraved man? What about the will? Does he have free will? It's a term that we've heard, uh, that we hear often. Well, going back to the time of the Reformation, the great German reformer, Martin Luther, uh, he wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will. Some of you may have heard of this book, The Bondage of the Will. <clears throat> it was aimed at a Catholic humanist scholar named Desiderius Erasmus, who had written... Uh, who had written a book defending the freedom of the will. And so Martin Luther writes a book called The Bondage of the Will. Erasmus was arguing that the human will was free, meaning that it was capable of doing good and capable of believing in God. And Luther was rightly horrified by this. He was horrified at the notion of free will, of a free will because it contradicted Scripture's teaching about man's sinfulness. And it gave man grounds to credit himself to adding to his own salvation. For Luther, the idea of free will was a denial of the grace of God in the gospel. Right? And I hope you're seeing the point of that and the weight of that. A totally depraved sinner does not have a free will. But as Luther argued, his will, his faculty of choice is in bondage to his depraved nature. Right? Think about that for a moment. We certainly operate within our natures freely, but we are bound by our natures. You've probably heard many examples and illustrations to demonstrate this. The thought experiment, if you will. Right? Imagine taking two buckets, and you fill one bucket with fruits and vegetables and bamboo shoots, and you take the other bucket and fill it with sausage and meat, steaks, you place them both in your backyard. And then you let a lion into your backyard. From which of those two buckets will that lion eat? Right, which one will he go to? He will devour the meat and ignore the vegetables. He's a meat eater. It's in his nature to do so. But if you do the same thing and you let a gorilla into your backyard, from which of those buckets will that gorilla eat? He will ignore the meat and he'll eat the fruits and the vegetables. Why? Because he's bound by his nature to do so. He is not a carnivore. So both freely eat. They're bound by their nature. And so also Luther argued that sinners left to their own sinful nature, apart from the intervention of the grace of God, they would reject any offer of reconciliation towards God. Like the hungry lion running to that meat, Hungry sinners run for indulgence in the pleasure of their own sins. That's in their nature to do so. 
Sinners who seek God. For Luther would be like thieves who look for a policeman. They're thieves. The last thing they want to have anything to do with is a policeman. And there are some who say that the bottom line as to whether or not a person comes to Christ as Lord and Savior hangs upon the freedom of their own choice, their own will. I'm sure all of you have heard this. But is that the case? Think about that, brothers and sisters. Think about your own self and your own salvation, your own walk and journey from sinner to saint. Is free will what caused you as a Christian to differ from the man who heard the gospel with complete indifference in the place where you work or even in your own family? Was it free will that caused you to respond and that man not to respond? Do you sit here this morning to hear God's word as you've come and to sing his praises and to pray together with the saints because your free will allowed God to save you and to give you a new heart? Is that what happened? While another person's free will held back God's spirit from working? What is the reason that you differ from the other person who refuses Christ? Is the answer found in your own free will? Well, not according to the testimony of Scripture. It is not found in your own free will. For the will of man, according to Scripture, is fallen. It is bound. It is fall, bound to his fallen nature. And so any decision to come to Christ, if left to his own will, would be consistent and emphatically and always no. Because if each of us in our unsafe state is what? Totally depraved. The mind, the motivations, the desires, the affections of all the sons and daughters of Adam are ruled by sin. The fallen man hates God. He cannot submit to God. And he cannot understand God's ways. The mind of man, according to 1 Corinthians 2.14, cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. According to Romans chapter 8, the mind is hostile towards God. Hostile towards His law. Ephesians 4.18 tells us what about fallen man? They're darkened in their understanding. Darkened in their understanding. Romans 1 says they're blinded. They suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. And according to Jesus, in John 3.19, men hate God and they love darkness and they will not come to the light of God lest their sinfulness, their sinful darkness would be exposed fallen nature of man negatively hates God and is repulsed by God. And the same fallen nature has a positive love affair with sin and with the pleasures of sin. Paul sums this up in Romans chapter 3 as he sets beside beside each other two psalms. He quotes them and he says, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Scripture is quite clear about the state of man and his fallen nature. The nature of man apart from the grace of Christ. And so either Scripture is wrong about man's nature, and he still has some ability to choose to move towards God, or Scriptures are correct which means that God must intervene in His grace if man's evil nature is to be changed. 
sinful, totally depraved man, if left to his own desire, will never bow down to God's authority and worship him because he is stuck on his own autonomy and sin. He cannot change himself. A dead man cannot make himself alive. That's what the prophet said, remember? Can an Ethiopian change his skin or the leper change his spots? Then can you do good who are accustomed to do evil? The depraved, spiritually dead rebel will never love God before whose throne and presence the seraphim cry out continually, Holy, holy, holy. With a hostile and a darkened mind, sinful man cannot understand and he cannot agree with, he cannot see the value in personally surrendering up the throne of his life to Christ Jesus. Sinful man will not choose the God whose gospel is foolishness and weakness to his mind and whom he ruthlessly dislikes. He cannot and will not believe in or obey God due to the bondage, his bondage and sin. So his will is not free. In this state of bondage, Luther said this, he is unable to bring his own powers to stop or change this willingness to do evil. Rather, he goes wildly and craves after evil. The snake bites. The lion craves meat. The sinner longs to sin. It's in their nature to do so. As Paul said in Romans chapter 6, you are slaves of sin. It's what Jesus said in in the Gospel of John chapter 8. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. We could spend a very long time in Scripture, unpacking all that God tells us regarding these things. We won't do that to you this morning. But think for a moment about the images in Scripture, as you know them, your familiarity with Scripture, and about the images that we see there that graphically display man's total depravity regarding his sinful inability to respond to God because of the bondage of his own will to sin. Right? Think about that for a moment. We see this so powerfully in Christ. We see it when Jesus... Uh, uh, in him opening the eyes of the blind. We see it in Jesus, his cleansing lepers, in his raising the dead to respond to his command, in healing the lifeless limbs of the lame, in opening the ears of the deaf so that they can hear him speak. All of these physical miracles of Christ, the us of man's spiritual, sinful impotence and bondage to sin. Sinners cannot live and see and hear or move towards Christ apart from His grace and delivering them from the bondage to the inky black darkness of this world and their own evil, leprous natures. Now at this point, if you're a visitor, you may be saying, man, this guy is a downer. (laughs) And I have indeed painted a bleak picture of mankind, his fallen state into sin, And it's bondage. Why? I've done so because the Word of God does so. The Bible pulls no punches in hammering home to us all that that we are helpless and powerless in the condition of our total depravity. And I want to remind you, though this is a downer, I I want to remind you that the degree to which we lessen the condition of man in this state is the extent to which we lessen God's great and powerful redemption of man. God worked to save man greatly from a great fall 
And so God gets all of the glory. And that brings us to the third and final question this morning. What about the salvation? What about salvation for depraved, for the depraved sinner? How can a totally depraved sinner in this radically fallen state be saved at all? Can he be saved? Well, the answer is that God himself must act and God himself must speak life into the dead sinner. Right? I've said it before, often, before you. When God speaks, things happen. Right? When God speaks, things happen. God in his grace must powerfully save the one who neither wants to be saved nor can be saved. The sinner is depraved, in bondage to his sins. He is in shackles. He is dead inside. He is rotting. Can a man in that state respond to the call of the gospel to repent and believe? To think that a man could, to think that a man in this state could or would respond to the gospel of his own will would be like speaking to a deaf man, explaining with great vigor and with great passion all the truths of the faith. The deaf man cannot hear a syllable of what you're saying despite all of your passion and vigor and care for him. To think that a man in this state would respond to the gospel is like showing the colors of the gospel to a blind man. Would the blind man be able to see the blackness of his own, the robe of his own righteousness or the dazzling white, perfect white uh, perfection of Christ, uh, Christ's robe? Could the blind man see the crimson red blood of Jesus poured out on the cross? It would have no effect on the blind man because he cannot see. Or humanly speaking, can a dead man be shaken alive so that they will accept Christ? They will not any more than a lame person will jump out of the way if somebody yells a car is coming. They cannot move. And so if God will not violate or conquer or overcome their will, and their will is in bondage and chained to sin, then everything is vanity. Everything is vanity. For no one will heed the message to come to Jesus. But thanks be to God, brothers and sisters. Sinners can be saved. And this is the glorious and wonderful thing about it all, dear Christian. Because God in His grace, in eternity past, out of the mere, mere good pleasure of His will, chose a company of people out of the multitude of the lost to be saved by the sovereign grace of the Father in unconditional election. A totally depraved sinner can be saved. And they are saved by Jesus coming into the world to pour out His blood of the new covenant on the cross. The cross, the many whom the Father chose, they will be saved. And we praise God for that, brothers and sisters. Christ came to die for the host of people whom the Father chose, what does Scripture say, before the foundation of the world. Christ paid their debt as a substitute. They will never have to pay it. Christ paid it all. They will go free. They must go free. And remember the angel, the message that came at Christ's birth. Remember what was spoken. So you shall call His name Jesus meaning Savior, for He will save His people from their sins. He came intentionally to pay the price for His people. 
His atonement, yes, it was limited to those the Father chose. And He actually redeemed those whom the Father had given to Him in eternity. And think about this. If this is not the case, then the persons of the Godhead are in conflict with one another. But we know this cannot be. The persons of the Godhead are not at cross purposes with one another. And so a totally depraved sinner can be saved. For the Son of God became man and nailed His sins to the cross. So we praise God, brothers and sisters. We praise God that the Holy Spirit can and does sovereignly give life to the dead. Sinners, by the way, whom we once were. We once were as well. It is the Spirit who can sovereignly take out the heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh that repents and believes and walks in newness of life according to God's law. That is a wonderful and a glorious thing. It is the Spirit who gives the hearing ear to the deaf and the seeing eye to the blind. The Holy Spirit transforms fallen natures by the powerful work of washing and regeneration and renewing, Titus tells us. By the Spirit, lame sinners in bondage to darkness find themselves freely running to Christ and basking in His glorious light because the Holy Spirit has given them new natures. He's made them new. They're new creations. Isn't that awesome? Awesome indeed. And also, do you realize what this means? It means that if you were not saved, if you are still walking in your sins, you too can be saved. It doesn't matter how bad you think you are or how dirty or wicked you think you've been. Why is that? Because God is the one who saves by His grace. Not your own efforts. Not your own trying. Not your own righteousness. God saves by His sovereign grace. And He cannot be stopped. Praise God. We cannot be stopped. Yet He saves the weak and He saves the broken. He saves those, all of those who cry out to Him. What a wonderful promise Romans gives us. A wonderful promise in Romans. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever. If you are not saved, even this morning, call upon Jesus to save you. Call upon Christ. He can do so. He will do so. He is the God of grace. Call on Him even this morning. Salvation is totally of our sovereign, triune God. Man is helpless. He is hopeless in the world. He is without God. He is dead in his sins and deserving God's eternal judgment. But praise God. He has seen fit to save objects of his mercy, his marvelous mercy according to his will. And he still brings the dead to life and gives them new natures to flee to Jesus, just like a moth to the flame. Flee to him, even now, brothers and sisters. And then one last thing about the truth of God's sovereignty, the power and his grace. This gospel of sovereign grace humbles man and then exalts God and his grace. And that has consequences. That has consequences. Remember, we began this morning referencing what should be all of our desires. And that is to be as consistent and faithful to God's word as possible. And these doctrines of grace, the whole complex, 
that God is the one who gets the credit and the glory and all the rest. It also means that our attempts to win the lost to Christ does not hang on our own intelligence or impressiveness or cleverness. Right? We talked about this extensively when we started our, our uh, series through Rome, um, 1 Corinthians. And Paul condemns the church at Corinth for leaning to be a personality-driven church. Right? We are neither uh, obsessed with finding new church fads or fetishes to tantalize or attract the flesh to get people in and to get them to make a decision for Jesus. No, rather we trust God to work through His means to open blind eyes and to raise the dead when His Spirit empowers our witness to the gospel of grace. And He will do so, and He does so. And He has been doing so for 2,000 years. And that is exceedingly freeing dear Christian. As you go from this place, as you go back down into the world, may you reflect on the glorious God of the doctrines of grace. Let us praise our triune God who can raise the dead, open blind eyes, cleanse lepers, and take out a heart of stone and bring a sinner to repentance towards God and a living faith in Jesus Christ. Praise this God, brothers and sisters. How do I know that He can do these things? I know because He did so to me. He opened my blind eyes after He raised me from the dead, just like He did so for many of you. Let us praise His name. To Him be the praise of His sovereign grace. Amen.